Hello, you're listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. We are a general interest independent bookstore located in the Los Feliz neighborhood of Los Angeles, California. This year, because of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had to close our store and cancel in-person events. But Skylight is your neighborhood bookstore, and we are finding ways to create community even while we're far apart. In the coming weeks, we'll be putting out lots of new audio content to help you discover new books, connect with authors, and check in with your favorite booksellers. To learn more about how you can help keep Skylight alive, please visit our website at skylightbooks.com or check out our social media accounts on Twitter and Instagram. You can subscribe to the podcast on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello, lovely listeners, and welcome back to Skylit. This is the Skylight Books podcast series, and my name is Maddie Gobo. I'm the events manager here at Skylight Books in Los Angeles. Uh, We are open right now for in-store shopping from 11 to 7 on weekdays and 10 to 8 on weekends. We ask that you wear a mask and sanitize your hands and social distance, blah, blah, blah. Um, If you would like a contactless shopping experience, we also offer curbside pickup those same hours. You can give us a call uh, at the store at 323-660-1175 or shop online 24-7 at skylightbooks.com. All right, so today we're gonna be talking short stories. Um, We have a debut author on to talk about his new collection, The Reincarnations. The author is Nathan Elias, and he's gonna be talking with Alex Thurner. Um, So The Reincarnations is uh, Nathan's debut. It's out from Montag Press, just came out in October. Um, These loosely connected stories are laced with the familiar and the uncanny, the real and surreal, the ordinary and the fabulistic. Spanning the boundaries of literary and speculative fiction, the reincarnation revolves around multiple forms of zen-like rebirth. I'm excited to hear more about this. So I'm gonna um, read a bit about our guests today and then we will uh, hear a short reading from the collection. All right, so Nathan Elias grew up in Toledo, Ohio. He is the author of the reincarnation's stories and the forthcoming novel Coil Quake Rift, which is coming out from Montag Press very soon. Uh, He holds an MFA in creative writing from Antioch University, Los Angeles. His writing has been nominated for the Pushcart Prize and Best Microfiction, and he was a finalist of the Saturday Evening Post 2020 Great American Fiction Contest. Congratulations. His short fiction, poetry, essays, and book reviews have appeared in publications such as Pank, Entropy, Hobart, Pithead Chapel, and Barnstorm. He lives in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife and rescue dog. Alex Thurner received a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science at Tulane University. He published clips with tbrnews.com and petergreenberg.com as a freelance journalist in Los Angeles until his creative writing MFA was awarded by Antioch University, Los Angeles. His journey as a writer continues at Loyola Marymount University, Los Angeles, where he is an English MA candidate and creative writing teaching assistant. He is also a producer for The Lion Lounge, a student-run literary podcast. Oh, so you're going to be an excellent interviewer. I'm looking forward to that. Um, Nathan and Alex, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having us, Maddie. It's really an honor, and um, I've been excited about this for weeks now. Yeah, I love that um, that you're both hometown authors, or at least in school in our hometown here. Yes. 
Los Angeles was a excellent home to me for roughly six years. Not a rough six years, but some parts, you know, depending on um, depending on how things go in Los Angeles. But I left in 2018, which um, was less turbulent than right now. So, yeah, you got out before uh, before everything got really weird. Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, uh, Nathan, you want to start us off with a, a little reading from the collection? I would love to. Okay. So I was going to read a small snippet from the very first story in the book, which is called The Alligator Theory. And this is a story about a documentary filmmaker whose focus is primarily filming anomalies and metamorphosis. And um, this story is about when his daughter goes missing and he starts to believe that maybe or maybe she didn't um, get abducted by an alligator and maybe becomes one. So um, here we go, the alligator theory. Cayman hadn't slept for five days and he had begun to worry that he was losing touch with reality. While Alma knocked herself out with tequila just to get through another answerless night, Cayman plugged his video camera into a television in the garage and sat out there on the musty sofa they bought through OfferUp from an old Hispanic couple in Seminole Heights. He watched over and over again the footage he'd shot of his little girl since she was born. He kept the garage door open. He didn't care if the neighbors saw him in there, drunk and sobbing, in case, by some will of God, his sweetheart came home in the middle of the night. This ritual began on the second night after she disappeared. He'd start with the first SD card. There were 17 in total, dated October 31st, 2014, the day his child had entered this ugly and terrifying world. And he'd watch all the footage leading up to October 31st, 2018, the morning she was last seen. The fact that his little one had disappeared on her birthday, only made the mystery more baffling, perhaps even that much more debilitating for Cayman and Alma, if such a thing were even possible. Cayman kept a calendar hanging near the television. It was Monday, November 5th, and their daughter had been gone for six whole days. The first four days, Cayman and Alma were told to stay in a hotel outside the city while the police investigated their house. After that, the police performed a thorough sweep of Moss Park, including hounds and a dredge, but found nothing. The sixth night, Cayman thought while he drank the remains of Alma's Cuervo, was the bringer of complete numbness. He felt the last of his sobs alleviating, He'd already faced madness, suicidal thoughts, and blinding rage. Now, with the onset of rain and a breeze coming in through the garage door, came and hoped he could finally try to instill some logic into the totally illogical tragedy that had befallen him and his wife. As the wind picked up, he heard a rustling in the oak, cypress, and palm trees outside. 
the quiet whistle was soft, sweet as a child's voice. Came and stood from the couch and went to the garage door, its dark outline like a monster's gaping mouth. If the garage door is a monster's mouth, he thought, then the rest of the world is its body, and my little girl has been swallowed whole. Raindrops splashed on his bare feet, and for a moment, he thought he heard someone saying, Daddy. He ran out into the rain and called his daughter's name. The wind picked up around him, its whistle louder than before. Tina, he called. Tina, where are you, baby? He went down the driveway and into the street where a small stream of oily water reflected the moonlight and sped into the gutter. It made him think of how God might have looked down upon the Hillsborough River, where he, Alma, and Tina had picnicked only moments before Tina vanished. He screamed her name again and saw one of the neighbor's lights turn on across the street. Stupid, he thought. She isn't here. She isn't anywhere. Stupid, he said, and slapped himself again and again. Stupid, stupid, stupid. It didn't matter if the neighbor saw him beating himself up. He wanted the world, the ugly monster, to see how much he hated himself. Once his face felt good and raw, he went back inside and sat, soaked on the already dank couch. The television was blue, which meant that it was time for another SD card. He inserted the next one, pushed play on the camera, and let out an extinguishing sigh of relief when he saw Tina's face pop up on the screen. Wake up, Kay. When he opened his eyes, he saw Alma standing over him in her pink, ragged robe. He smelled the remnants of a hard Florida downpour, humidity, grass, and oil hanging thick in the air. A breeze came in through the garage door. It had been his first sleep since Tina disappeared, and it felt as refreshing as it was disorienting. You're going to catch cold if you keep leaving that damn door open, Alma said. She picked up the empty bottle of Cuervo from next to the television and groaned. I need it open, he said, in case she comes home in the middle of the night. If she comes back, it won't be through that door. Not if, came and said, she's coming back. Alma turned the television off, tossed the Cuervo bottle into the recycling bin and went back into the house. And after that point in the story, he, um, as hell bends on figuring out what happened to Tina, um, he goes back to the scene of the crime where she disappeared. He starts to try to film it. Um, and eventually he may start to think that he sees um, perhaps his daughter transformed into an alligator. I don't know. Thank you, Nathan. Wow, what a, what a mucky, grimy story already. Like I can feel it. Uh, physically, you've got such great tactile stuff going on there. Um, Thank you. So I want to hand this over to Alex to uh, to get deeper in into the muck with you. Thank you, yes. Maddie. Thank thank you for having me. And Nate, I loved your reading. Um, so much great provocative images that I'm that are bouncing around in my head, even though I've read it. But to hear you read it is uh, is pretty special. Um, so thank the you, first. Alex. 
So the first story in this collection is about hope amidst irre irreparable loss. A husband and wife struggle with the mysterious disappearance of their young daughter. The husband, who you call Cayman, starts documenting the location where she is lost. Uh, the opening of the story indicates he hasn't slept in five days. So where does the inspiration for alligator theory come from? It all started with um, this idea about a filmmaker. I have a background in filmmaking and also documentary filmmaking as well as working in reality television. And I always had this, this love of people who just love to film things and just capture the rarities in life. And um, just for example, you could go on YouTube and search a, search a caterpillar transforming into a butterfly in the chrysalis stage. Um, these kind of things in nature are so beautiful that I, it, all, it all started with the idea of a character who purely wanted to film this stuff. And then it evolved into a character capturing something that kind of defies all human knowledge of biology and reality. And as soon as I started to think about what, what would this character capture, what would it be that he would film that is unexplainable? And um, the story was sitting with me for probably a couple of years until after I left Los Angeles in 2018 and moved to Tampa, Florida, my wife and I were at a park and there were signs that say, you know, beware of the alligators. And that, that was sort of the light bulb in my mind where I realized that the story that had been dormant in my heart for a long time about this character, it finally came alive and I realized uh, what it was that he had to capture. Throughout Cayman's struggle, we get the idea that he is, um, he can think bigger than himself, although he is turning severely inward. Um, do you believe mysticism soothes the souls of broken people, as it does Cayman, maybe towards the end of this story? I definitely believe that mysticism has the potential to soothe the souls of broken people. We all, in some way, I think it's natural for humans to when tragedy and grief strike, we look for truth and hope anywhere we can find it. And I think mysticism, whether it's the supernatural, um, perhaps even religion, depending on your views or um, anything has a way for us to, to sort of sell the brokenness in us, if not heal it altogether. And in the case of this story, you know, Cayman starts to lose touch with reality. And toward the end of the story, he meets a gentleman who um, he is a native to, um, to Tampa and he is part of the original Seminole tribe. And he explains to him some of the folklore of their people. And in this case, it is the lore of a creature called the Latish, which is a um, person who transforms into an alligator. And this mysticism, I think, helps Cayman 
find the truth he needs. If, if not the absolute truth, it's the truth he needs to move on from this tragedy. When he deals with the depression based on the loss of his child, um, there's definitely a sense that readers uh, can see his empathy on the page, um, even though he borders on delusion. Does this depression make him so empathetic that he borders on delusion? I think the bordering on delusion is something that I am relying on from uh, the implications that I, I set out with the writing, you know, you're, I absolutely begin the story with he hasn't slept in five days. So right from the get-go, I want it to be perceived that this character is delusional. Anything, he's immediately an unreliable character. He may or may not be witnessing reality. And he continues in this broken state throughout the whole story. And I want the reader to be questioning the validity of what it is that he's witnessing. And later in the story, after he revisits Moss Park, he looks, he keeps going back to the location where his daughter disappeared. He thinks that he's filmed an alligator. Later in the story, he thinks he sees his daughter, thinks he, sees a, a version of her on tape as an alligator. I want his delusional state to be part of the suspense and to also leave it ambiguous for the reader as to whether or not any of this is actually happening. I definitely get the feeling that that's a function of Alma's character. Uh, maybe the skepticism that she brings to the story in terms of what Cayman uh, deals with emotionally. Um, do you hope, and then uh, it was also interesting to hear about, you talk about the, the final character of the story, the, the Native American who brings some clarity to all of the chaos that he endures. Um, do you hope that we see Cayman's particular perspective at the end of the story, or are we simply meant to experience his grief fully? Well, I think, you know, there's the dichotomy, there's Cayman and there's Alma, the husband and wife of this, uh, the parents of this, of this child, mother and father. And on one hand, Cayman is buying into his wild theory, the alligator theory that, that, that Tina has been abducted. And Alma, on the other hand, is the realist. She's skeptical of this. And she thinks it's to it would be totally illogical for this to happen. So that dichotomy is creating the tension for me a big tension in the story about it's not only about tina anymore it's it's about the absence of tina and what that emptiness how that that emptiness manifests in the lives of her parents and you know i, I could as far as whether or not I, I hope that the readers will experience Cayman and Alma's grief fully. I could never uh, want someone to experience that grief fully, but I would say that I had I could have easily kept going with this story, and I think to experience it fully would would take a novel. But I cut it off at eighteen pages. So let's talk about uh, a little bit more of the collection then. Um, property damage is about a man named Mark 
who has a public outburst after learning the love of his life sleeps with another man. Mark forces himself into routine work as the neighborhood handyman. And I in particular really love the last lines of property damage. Uh, the main character focuses solely on a simple task of reupholstering a chair and he's doing it throughout the night. Uh, and the line is this, I put a needle in my left hand, a thread in the right. I aim to meet them both at the eye and make a promise to myself that I'll have something new by daylight. When in your writing did you develop such a powerful final image, uh, an idea that rehabbing a character's life is possible? Uh, thank you for highlighting that part of the story. Um, the interesting thing about property damage, which is the second story in the collection, several of the stories in this book, they're loosely connected. This one is part of what I consider in my mind a, a mini trilogy within the book, or perhaps a triad or a triptych. And it, fought, it um, precedes two other stories that come later, which are called Right Now at This Very Moment and later Taking Flight. And the, the stories all revolve around the same characters. But for me as a writer, I said earlier that I have a background in filmmaking and screenwriting. These characters were sitting with me for a long time and I actually had written a screenplay for and filmed a short film um, that sort of happens um, not during or before this short story, but um, it explores some of the main characters. You mentioned Mark, who's the protagonist, and his brother, his younger brother, Sam, who we later meet in the story Taking Flight. I filmed this short film with them, and it was really some of the actors' improvisations that helped me develop and see the characters in a different light. And the character Sam in the story reupholsters furniture as a way to kind of meditate and find focus. He teaches this to Mark later um, in the story Property Damage. And it was really that discovery, which is a rare thing when I was filming, uh, you know, a, direct, a director and actor improvisational moment is really what helped me um, discover that about the, the fiction. The interesting thing is that the film never was actually made and the characters now only exist in the reincarnations, but it's interesting how that emotional work still lives on. It's interesting to hear you draw upon your experience uh, in acting in a film. Uh, so my next question is, what is the function of the ensemble of characters surrounding Mark? Uh, is his healing process exacerbated or cured by this community? The thing about property damage is I was writing this character, Mark, who's a character whose whole life is wrapped up in his romance with his fiance and how all of the, the house of cards comes tumbling when his fiance Lorraine cheats on him. And after that, he's constantly trying to rebuild his life, even symbolically as he is a handyman and helping other, his neighbors rebuild things in their home. He goes from character to character in his neighborhood. He becomes, he becomes sort of a local, a local um, helper. He's known throughout the neighborhood. 
And as he goes around trying to help people, it's really a, seems like a cry for his own help. And his retribution comes through the eyes of the people who know him best. Later, he seeks advice unwittingly from his younger sister, Zoe, who is in school to be a therapist. And toward the penultimate scene in the story with his younger brother, Sam, who is moving in with his own girlfriend. And here, Mark is um, falling apart after his fiance has cheated on him. And Sam, his younger brother, gives him this advice about how to re reupholster a chair, which symbolically is kind of like reupholstering your own life. So I think the healing process definitely um, is upheld by Mark's community. As sometimes it, all, it is with all of us when we're going through our own personal tragedies or something that might seem like a tragedy to us may seem inconsequential or insignificant to the people around us. But in the end, people still have a way of being there for us. While, uh, while community has a, has a bedrock in, in some of your work in this collection, um, you also dive into some very intense family moments with other characters and those characters uh, reoccur in some ways and uh, maybe not necessarily in a trilogy like they did starting with property damage. Um, but uh, you render three female voices in Andy Comes Home. Uh, Andy's boyfriend ends their relationship. Her younger sister Amy is too young for discretion and inadvertently reminds her older sister about the split with her boyfriend Neil. Readers learn there's a more significant issue and Nana Dottie is her death at a local hospital, but she still has wisdom for Andy. As a writer, what compelled you to dwell in the space of a young girl, a young woman, and their grandmother? Yes, Andy Comes Home is actually another one of the small trilogies or you know triptychs in this book. The first of which is Andy Comes Home, Later in the story, later in the collection, we get separation anxiety. And the last is the final and um, titular story of the book, The Reincarnations. But in Andy Comes Home, I was looking at how personal and generational histories are created and the ways in which the lessons of our elders are handed down from generation to generation. So Andy, in the story, Andy Comes Home, she has just left Los Angeles and has returned to her hometown of Ohio after her boyfriend, Neil, has left her. Um, he was unfaithful to her, and as any reader of the book will know, um, the reincarnation certainly deals a lot with infidelity and the ways in which we invest our our identities into our relationships and are sometimes forced to find a rebirth after um, those relationships end. But Andy comes home and right upon coming home, she sees her youngest sister named Amy. And within a few moments, they are all informed that their Nana, their grandmother Dottie is in the hospital and um, she's dying. We, it's one of the shorter stories in the book, and they immediately go to the hospital to see her, and the, the 
final scene of the story involves Andy sitting with her grandmother and her grandmother gives her this advice about her own love life and um, her own histories of hurting people and having been hurt by people. And for me, it was purely generational. And later in um, the story, The Reincarnations, we see more of that. On the issue of relationships, as it relates to your story, if romance has suspense, it resides in right now at this very moment. The two characters are Athen, uh, Sylvia, and Sam. Uh, Athen and Sylvia are dealing with the loss of Sam. Athen is reluctant, but he desires to fill the space Sam occupied. Sylvia, meanwhile, is so intoxicated with grief-stricken, grief and grief-stricken that she even refers to Athen as Sam. Uh, does the character, character Sylvia Pryor have a change of heart when she's sober? Or is the meaning in the title of the story that sorrow requires living moment to moment? Yes, the story right now at this very moment is one of those that's interlaced with the story property damage. Um, we learn, and right now at this very moment, which is somewhere in the middle of the book, the two protagonists in this story are Athen and Sylvia, and they're both in a hotel room snowed in on the anniversary of Sam's death. And Sam was Athen's best friend and Sylvia's lover. Later in the story, we, uh, later in the book, The Reincarnations, we have a story called Taking Flight, which is through the eyes of, of Sam um, after he's already died. And this story finds the living later trying to reconcile where they stand now that the person who was the bridge between them is now forever gone. So the way their relationship has evolved is starting to become a romantic one and it feels taboo. I mean, imagine your best friend dies or your lover dies and um, and trying to overcome grief, you would of course want to um, find some kind of comfort from the people or the other person who knew who knew the deceased best and in this case it starts to evolve in a romantic relationship sylvia is dealing with this death by taking medication pills marijuana alcohol so she's definitely intoxicated she starts to she gets so um loaded that she starts to speak to Athen as if he's Sam and Athen goes along with it because he thinks it's what's best for her in the moment. And I think Sylvia would have a change of heart if she was sober, as we probably all would. Um, she would probably be sober, look back on the last night, if she even could remember the previous night, she would probably say to herself, what the heck was I thinking? But as far as the title of the story, um, right now at this very moment, whether or not it, it implies that sorrow requires living moment to moment, I think it does imply that, but more importantly, the title of the story alludes to everything that had to happen in the past to lead us 
right now where we are at this present moment. For example, Alex, you know, I met you years ago at um, Antioch University and without having ever met you back then and us having developed a friendship and rapport, I would not have known to ask you to come join me on this interview <laughs> and all the things that led you to your podcasting journey with the Lions Lounge has prepped you to be an excellent interviewer. So that's sort of where the that the title comes there is um, all the things that had to happen in in life to lead us to this moment. And in, in the case of Athen and Sylvia, all the things that had to happen for Athen to meet Sam, for Sylvia to meet Sam, for Sam to have died, for there to have been a snowstorm to lock them into a hotel on this night and how sorrow certainly plays a part in that. Thank you for uh, speaking to a little bit about our uh, serendipitous meeting. And yes. uh, obviously uh, I'd like to return the favor by talking about one of my favorite stories in your collection, which is the Naga Dreams. Uh, it is an utterly wild experience, a first person adventure with a famous actress. I think you capture something very realistic with interactions depicting the film industry. This story allows readers to dwell on a fascinating concept. What if our dreams could connect with others and become entertainment? The story takes a speculative dive from the very start. It is very controversial in fiction writing to start a story in a dream state, though it does give you some poetic license that contrasts with the prose Virginia has in her reality. Did you relish breaking with conventions while writing this story? I don't know if I relished in breaking conventions, but I certainly was aware of the convention of thou shalt not start a short story or novel with a dream. However, I think that that rule can be broken as all of them can. But in this case, especially because it is a story about dreams and the nature of dreams. In the Naga dreams, I had this wild idea about a near future where the cinema and all filmmaking has evolved because our dreams can be recorded and projected and therefore actors are trained to lucid dream instead of actually perform live in front of a camera. And that idea, um, I was just overtaken with it. So in the story, I needed to rely on what those dreams look like and how I would format the dreams. So the story does begin with um, these wild and poetic dreams of the protagonist. Her name is Virginia. She is an actress who is now also starting to question reality because she's spent so much of the last um, few films she's worked on being induced with gamma radiation, which helps propel their lucid dreaming. Wild, I know. And um, so throughout the story, we continue to go back to these dream fragments until inevitably they blend into what I hope would culminate into a dream and reality um, concoction so that by the end you cannot tell one from the other. I want to return a little bit to the character 
named Neil. In this story, we experience him from the first person point of view. This story is separation anxiety. Uh, Neil feels regret for his actions, his infidelities, yet I find it hard to feel bad for him. The brief imagery you provoke through infidelity makes him neither villain nor hero. Compared to your other stories, there is an element of minimalism here. Does context overshadow imagery? Was that a conscious choice in your process? Does the story rely more on hints for the reader to dissect? Separation anxiety is intertwined with the stories Andy comes home and later the reincarnations. Neil, the protagonist of separation anxiety, is the one who is unfaithful to Andy, which causes her to go home. Andy comes home. And part of that, is he hero or is he villain, you know, was one of the challenges because it's in fiction writing, they, the fiction writing teachers united, if that's a thing, I don't know. They always tell you that you, know, that you wanna have a relatable and likable protagonist. Well, when your protagonist is unfaithful to the person he loves, it's hard to make that person likable. However, um, Neil has been struggling with medication um, as well as a, his own um, brief psychotic type of episode, the story begins with him in search of feeling because he has become completely numb from the medication he's been taking, and which is Prozac. And he's been on and off this medication, which may or may not have led to him being unfaithful because he was acting um, grandiose and also had his own delusions. So whether or not um, the context overshadows the imagery, I think that at this point in the collection, we've seen, we've seen imagery of infidelity and I wanted a story that has more going on contextually. And in the case of Neil, I wanted the readers to be able to identify with someone who is flawed and also have some insight into what makes him flawed. So it's a, it's a difficult balance um, to, to walk when you're having someone who is sort of acting, acting the fool, yet we have to have something that allows us to still gravitate toward him so that we can see his humanness. Without jumping to your last uh, story, which is the title of the collection, The Reincarnations, um, like you said, we encounter these characters more than once in the collection. Readers encounter Neil through the eyes of Amy and Andy in a previous story, but how does Neil's perspective complicate the collection as a whole uh, in brief? In brief, his perspective is, is one of someone who is medicated and who is also on and off this medication. Um, the cover of the book, you'll see a small illustration amongst others of a, a bottle of pills. And pills is definitely divisive in the book. We see it later in a story, Love Drugs. We see it also in Taking Flight. We see it in Separation Anxiety and how pills sort of can be used um, for good or bad, depending on 
the person and also the manufacturer. Many of these stories dive into the speculative. Uh, the story title Halcyon is the closest to horror this collection gets. The first person protagonist's sole function is to clean the compound of a scientific commune. Their leader is Juno, and he recruits people lost amidst mainstream society. The reveal is members of the community become subjects of an experiment, so to speak. There is a rebirth in the story. Uh, this journey into a, is this a journey into a madman's mind through the eyes of a servant, the main protagonist? Are you demonstrating the hubris of mankind with Halcyon? Halcyon, yes. Halcyon is certainly one of the outlier stories in the collection. Um, you said that it's the closest to horror as the collection gets. And, you know, there is, um, I guess you might say, some light body horror or transmogrification. And I say that um, wearily because I try to handle that context and um, trope delicately and also infuse it with beauty, which really a lot of the collection is me trying, uh, hopefully seamlessly to experiment with different tropes. And in this one, Juno, the main character, uh, her name is Alice, and the story is based lightly on the Greek mythology of um, Halcyon and the Halcyon bird. So she is imprisoned in a tower in the Greek mythology. And um, in the story, Alice has been sort of um, bought into living on this commune as some people tend to be by a glorious and idealistic leader type of person. In this case, his name is Juno. He is selling everyone on the idea of what he's working on called the Life Stasis Project, where there are many animals on this commune. There is a giant aviary that are, these animals are kept in a lighthouse. And as far as whether or not this is a journey into the madman's mind, I think we certainly see some of Juno being the madman. And however, it's really more about the eyes of the servant in this case, which would be Alice. And I certainly could have made Juno the protagonist, but I think uh, that story would be a much different one perhaps even more grotesque than my writing style tends to um, lean toward. And as far as the hubris of mankind, I think Juno is certainly an embodiment of that. And everyone who lives on the commune, Alice, a character we meet later, Seth, who is sort of her hopeful escape from this commune, they're all, um, victim to this one man's hubris. In, in relation to Alice and Seth, they do grow close and then they share an even more peculiar bond by the end. Uh, do you think they have a form of agency at the end of this story or are they merely captive throughout? Well, Alice and Seth, both workers on this commune who have been giving, given jobs and duties, and as all of the people who live on this commune repeat um, as a mantra that has been taught to them, duty is our bond. 
Alice and Seth start to question this. Seth at first, which leads to Alice also questioning this. And they have strict orders to not meet anywhere in secret, which of course they um, break that rule of Juno's. And this defiance leads to them being held captive in a, in a much stronger way that they already have been, which is a um, sub, subtle captive captivity they've been, been in by just joining this commune. But later they are brought to the lighthouse, Juno captures them, and um, we start to see a mythological type of transmogrification um, in which, spoiler alert, they are trans transformed into birds, uh, which birds are held on this commune, and they have to make a decision if they are going to try to escape, which will require them to test the wings that they have been recently given by Juno. And at the end, the question is, will they jump or will they not? You spoke briefly about love drugs uh, in previous questions, and it has really captivating conflict. Uh, you use a variable third-person point of view between the two main characters. How do you make these transitions seamless without any repetition in the prose? Love drugs is about two lovers, Gray and Autumn, and the narrative structure involves rotating from Gray's perspective, third person close, to Autumn's third person close. And right off the bat, the story delivers a speculative conceit, which is that there exists a drug or pharmaceutical that, if taken, allows its user to fall out of love with the person of their choosing. Supposedly, this drug has already been engineered um, so that you will forget the person, forget to love the person you don't want to love anymore. And Gray is um, thinking about taking this pill. So I had to, I deliberately created this third variable third person point of view rotating between them so that we would learn as a reader what led to Gray wanting to take this pill. How, how is Autumn affected by this? And eventually I, I want to keep the characters separate because they're not together um, in place or time until the very end of the story. And I wanted to keep them separate while also keeping them close. And I don't know if it, if it worked as well as I hoped, I think maybe it did, but by the end, we finally see them together. And that's where the truth of their love or lack thereof comes out. Uh, I think it does have an effective conclusion. Uh, as a writer, is it challenging to craft scenes that lack the main characters conversing? Uh, you talk about their separateness um, and there's so much pain in this story. Uh, just like many of the other stories, but uh, Gray and Autumn's in-scene dialogue only occurs in the last paragraph. So what is, what is it about this technique that seems so satisfying? For me, this story, this, the technique 
would not necessarily serve another story. I believe when it comes to the craft of writing fiction, really any form of creative writing, poetry, creative nonfiction, screenwriting, form must beget content and content also must beget form, which is paradoxical, but the two have to be, they must be interwoven and you can't have one without the other. So the form of this story, two variable third person um, narrators, there's, that was the only way for me to tell it because I knew going into the story that the emotional resonance I felt before I had even written it, when I was still envisioning it, was these two lovers sitting on a bed with daylight breaking through the curtain and us, the reader, wondering, did one of them take the pill? Do they still love each other? Did the pill work? And I, in order to heighten that closeness, the only way to do it was to keep them separate. The complexity of their love is definitely a uh, is definitely compelling, and uh, I, I think I think you pull it off very well. Uh, we return in taking flight uh, is about it's this is with Sam and Sylvia again. It's about first love from the eyes of a romantic teenage boy. Uh, he stops at nothing to win the heart of Sylvia, who attends a high school for the arts. Ultimately, he succeeds at great cost. You write a grandiose scene where psychedelics let their love take flight. Uh, is this story about pursuing passion no matter the cost? Is it a cautionary tale? Uh, what is your argument for either character as it relates to Sam and Sylvia? This story is um, through the eyes of a teenager. It's written from the first person point of view of Sam who begins the story with before I died, I was just trying to be a normal teenager. And in that sense, I think any teenage romance story is a cautionary tale. And as far as um, how it relates to Sam and Sylvia, the tragedy is that one, one has died and continues to love. And with Sylvia, we learn about what happens to her later and how she grieves Sam in the end. Um, we learn and right now at this very moment how she's moving on. But sadly, Sam um, remains dead and is forced to sort of watch this episode of his life from beyond the grave. So let's talk about the final story in the collection uh, before we get close to wrapping. I love that you end the story, that you end the collection with the reincarnations. In this story, we dive into a Amy's perspective, who is a young girl. She's a sick, she's sick a few weeks after her grandmother's passing. This is the Nana from the previous story. Uh, ironically, Neil's presence in the other stories gets a new life, or at least his importance does. He is the character that tells Amy about reincarnation. Uh, Amy's interiority, interiority conceals that she dreams many of the stories in the collection. So there is a lot of mysticism here, a thought-provoking image of a child uh, imagining the sorrow and the complicated lives of so many characters. Why is this the perfect note to end the collection? Why amplify the hidden dreams of a child? The concept of reincarnation has always been one to baffle me. And imagine how a child would perceive such a thing in the story, 
it comes up that Amy has um, often wondered, you know, where things go when they die, which I think is a question many children as well as adults ask. And it seems like the easy answer to a child is heaven, heaven, sweetheart, we go to heaven. And the character Neil takes the road less traveled and tells her about reincarnation. And in this way, um, she starts to dream as a child would about different kinds of reincarnations. She might've had, she has a pet caterpillar that is soon to turn into a butterfly. And she wonders about that kind of reincarnation. And then she wonders as she's sick and in the hospital in the final scene of the book, um, what her incarnation was before this life and what it might be after. Very poetic way to uh, to wrap uh, to wrap my questions. I must express gratitude for the opportunity to discuss your work, Nathan. Before we end the interview, I hope you'll tell us a little bit about your forthcoming novel set for a release next year. The title is Coil Quake Rift. Would you like listeners to know anything about it? Yes, in brief, Coil Quake Rift, forthcoming from Montag Press, which will be out in um, early to mid 2021 is about love, loss, and alternate realities in which a husband and his pregnant wife must navigate Los Angeles after a major earthquake that may have been created by an astrophysicist ex-lover. We'll leave you hanging. Plenty of suspense there for all of us. I won't, I, yes. and I haven't read it, so I can't give any spoilers, fortunately. And thank you as well. Um, I'll express gratitude to you, Alex. Thank you so much for this excellent interview. And also to Maddie and Skylight for having me. It's truly an honor. Everybody go support Skylight Books and order all your holiday books from them. Thanks, Nathan. I appreciate the uh, integrated ad. That was beautifully done. <laughs> oh, yes. Um, well, thank you both. And Alex, thank you for your really thoughtful questions. It, it was a pleasure to listen to this conversation. And um, Nathan, congratulations on the debut. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, before we say our goodbyes, is there anything else we didn't cover that you'd like to say to our listeners? This um, has just been a pleasure to talk about this book, The Reincarnations, with you all, which has been about six years in the making. And I just say support small presses, support indie authors, and share books. I love that. This, my unofficial Skylight motto is books are for sharing. So we're on the same page there. That should be the official Skylight motto. <laughs> I'm working on it. All, All right. right. Well, thanks, lovely listeners. It's uh, always a pleasure to hang out with you in this audio space. We'll catch you on the flip side of the next episode. And meanwhile, everybody, take care out there. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Skylight Books podcast series. Please don't forget to visit our website at skylightbooks.com and make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast for more author talks and bookseller conversations. You can find us on Podbean, iTunes, and Spotify. Stay safe and healthy, and we hope to see you back in our store soon.